86, uh, sorry, 87, and um, worked with their genetics for about three years uh, and distributed their seeds throughout the country. And during that experience, I learned a lot about growing and breeding. And, uh, then uh, went on and created Brothers Grimm Seeds in the 90s, in the late 90s, around 97. So that was about 10 years later. And then uh, we reopened in 2016 after having shut down in uh, 2002. Um, ran for five years back in the day and you know it was prohibition time so it was rather dangerous uh, you could do 20 years easy if you got caught growing in your basement so I uh, took a header and went to Europe for a few years and uh, laid low for a while and then uh, when I got back to the states I'm a nuclear engineer and I worked as an engineer for several years before I sort of while sitting on the sidelines, started to notice that the uh, cannabis movement was actually making a lot of headway and there were many legal states uh, starting to uh, have medical marijuana and so on. And uh, at that time, 2015, I realized, gee, you know, I could move to Colorado and reopen Brothers Grimm and get back in business. So that's what I did. And I spent about a year working to get the company up and running and being able to produce the seeds in the same strains that I had in the past and create some new ones and so now here we are in 2020 it's about five years into the reopening of Brothers Grimm and um, it's a whole new world and we're able to do this legally we have a website where you can go and buy our seeds right direct from me the breeder uh, and that's a pretty obvious website name uh, brothersgrimseeds.com so if you go there you can uh, peruse all of our strains and um, We've just rebuilt this new website and um, we're going to try to make it a much more <clears throat> user interface friendly experience with a blog, as well as just being able to sell seeds and merchandise through the website. I like to project some of my personality and some of the you know knowledge and wisdom, if you will, that I've accumulated over all these years of growing and breeding. So. Watch that, it's in its infancy right now, but we're real serious about making that thing, uh, you know, really someplace to check in and learn something as well as stay connected with what's going on with Brothers Grimm and our seeds and new strains and things like that, my travels, which I already have been putting it out there for folks on Instagram, both as a professional web, uh, professional Instagram feed for Brothers Grimm Seeds, that's our feed on Instagram, Brothers Grimm Seeds, and then my personal side of Mr. Soul is uh, Mr. Soul underscore C99, because of course I'm the creator of Cinderella 99. That was back uh, just a, a shade over 20 years now, because uh, 1999, 19, 2019 was the 20-year anniversary for Cinderella 99, and uh, still 100% popular as ever. And um, this was the strain that when I created it, they people out in the world uh, that started to enjoy it and grow it and smoke it. Um, they dubbed it the holy grail of indoor marijuana at the time because it did <clears throat> tick all the boxes that were important for indoor growers that there wasn't really a lot of what I call now designer genes, <laughs> G-E-N-E-S, <laughs> designer genes being uh, the kinds of strains that were designed for all the attributes that would lend itself to being a good indoor plant, which are essentially the plants needed to stay more compact, 
due to the height restrictions of growing indoors. And at that time, you have to figure the late 90s, indoor growing and even the dissemination of information and seeds and so on was not the way it is today where it's super ubiquitous and you just see seeds everywhere and so on. Um, in those days, there weren't as many strains to choose from by far. I mean, one one thousandth of the number of strains available. Uh, and most of them were coming from land race. Uh, we wanted to have sativa, you know, the high of a sativa, uh, but it always meant that you had to wait a long time for the long flowering times. You had to put up with the tall plants and uh, growing indoors. These were all nuisance traits of the sativa plant. And so when I created Cinderella 99, the, the goal for me was to create a seed line that would give you plants that gave you a sativa high uh, and had the flavor, um, but acted more like an indica indoors. In other words, stayed more compact, gave you a bigger yield and flowered faster. Um, also important was resin production and flavor. Uh, obviously the quality of the high, we wanted that to be the uplifting soaring high. And uh, on top of all of that, there were problems with hermaphrodites in those days, just, you know, uh, it wasn't even so much from feminizing seeds. It was more just people bred with Hermes, uh, not realizing what they were doing so much at the time. And so I wanted Cinderella 99 to also be a strain that you could count on it to be without hermaphrodites. So I was successful after a year and a half, three years, it was in that range of time that I developed that first uh, issue of Cinderella 99, went out at uh, Heaven Stairway, uh, was, the, was the distribution company in Canada, in, uh, where was he, Ontario? I'm not even positive, <laughs> it's been so long. But anyway, the original Cinderella 99 was only available for those few years through Heaven Stairway in Canada. A guy named Richard that ran uh, the seed bank was producing or was distributing the seeds that we produced. And I had a partner named Sly and he was located in Las Vegas and I was in Boston. So we kind of collaborated from that distance and uh, between the two of us, we bred and produced seeds for those years. And uh, he's since passed away, uh, but I'm still cranking out the stuff. Uh, just I know very much who Sly is. Now, before we get too deep into the story here, I mean, you're, you're blowing through a huge time span in a very quick time. Now, um, trying to get everybody yeah, condensing all this history is hard. <laughs> Oh, everybody's here to listen to this. I'm telling you, they're not just, you know, I know because we I talked briefly uh, last week about uh, you coming up here and we're all interested in, in the breeding stuff and the seeds and all that good stuff. But uh, you're such an interesting character. We want to we want to know Mr. Soul himself. You know, we, yeah, we see all, all that other information on the other shows, you know, all the time. But there's okay, not too cool. many that, uh, you know get to you in, in, in you know, indirectly, I guess. Well, and, by all means, I was a little in the direction of, I'll, I'll answer any kind of questions you all have. And uh, I'm so curious here um, to find out that the nuclear engineer came after a little bit of the, the marijuana growing and breeding. I honestly thought that came first and maybe you got tired of that and uh, ventured off. So oh, could no, you tell it was me? simultaneous. It was, uh, I got out of, uh, 
I finished my master's degree in 87. Uh, I went to RPI in Troy, New York. Um, and uh, when I graduated and got my master's degree, I was hired at a company called uh, Combustion Engineering in Windsor, Connecticut. And so that was my day job. And uh, Super Sativa Seed Club had me working for them as a distributor of their seeds at the same time. So it wasn't like one came before the other. I'm sorry if it made it sound that way. But it was a uh, living a double life, essentially, during that time. I would go to work each day and work in a cubicle and, you know, do the kinds of things that engineers do. And, of course, it was an interesting life because imagine at that time in the, uh, you know, late 80s, uh, it's completely prohibited and federally illegal to grow marijuana. And if anybody found out about it, you could, you know, go to prison for a long time or get ripped off by people who knew you were growing. And so it was something that at that time, the culture of being a grower very much revolved around being like a hermit and not having a lot of friends and not inviting people to your home and kind of living uh, this uh, hermit-like existence. And uh, so we weren't able to talk about it at work, obviously. And when the internet came along 10 years later, it was like a a cork coming out of a champagne bottle for all of us that were sort of secretly doing this. And we had an, now we had a way to anonymously share information and start talking about things that before that was completely, you know, you couldn't go stand around the water cooler and tell your workmates about your plants. You know, <laughs> it just was something like, I remember having the thought that like, damn, you know, I, what am I going to tell people I did the night before when they all start talking at work around the water cooler like I'll have to make up stories about what I was doing the night before because I can't tell them what I was really doing you know growing harvesting trimming smoking whatever it was I mean I'd have to say you know I was practicing guitar or uh, <laughs> something that nobody could fact check very easily <laughs> so that was part of the lifestyle back then and uh, I don't know what else do y'all want to hear about well, the whole story. I mean, well, how did how did you even get started using the plant? I mean, uh, oh, I mean, when, when I was a teenager, yeah, my first experience was uh, pretty uh, remarkable. I guess is the word for it. I had um, always admired this uncle of mine who's only five years older than me. He was my father's youngest brother, Frank. And um, when I would visit my grandparents' house. I was always interested to go rummage around in his bedroom and find all the interesting shit that he had on his dressers. And, you know, and I was rummaging around there at one point when I was 14 years old and I found a bag of weed in one of his drawers. And I said, oh, wow, what's this? He says, well, have you ever heard of Acapulco gold? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I guess, you know, it's one of the marijuana strains. And, uh, you know, and he said, this is like the best stuff in the world. And then he proceeded to show me how to roll a joint and two of us went out in the backyard and he had a abandoned step van in the back we sat in the passenger and driver's seats of the step van and smoked the joint between the two of us and I remember feeling like wow this is an, a, a really strange sensation like my feet my legs felt tingly and I had this feeling that I was dreaming and that I was going to wake up later and this never happened you know? <laughs> 
though of course there was a lot of giggling and laughing and uh, we went in the house and this high seemed to last forever too you know it was time just condensed as it does when you're high and my first experience seemed like it was hours and hours of being in this dreamlike state <clears throat> and just everything seemed so surreal i guess you could call it and i remember burning my mouth on some soup that my grandmother served me and <laughs> that sensation of you know like the roof of your mouth crinkling up <laughs> I was so high, you know, like I just put the spoon in my mouth. It was way too hot. But um, anyway, that's that was my first time getting high. And then uh, <clears throat> going on from there, I started to meet people and work with people who smoked marijuana and shared it with me. And I always thought about growing it, too. But from that 14 year old kid through all the way to graduate of college, basically, I had only just started growing when I got in college. because. I didn't understand coming from upstate New York, the way that the plant flowered. I'd see pictures of colas and flowers and such in uh, High Times Magazine, for example, right? And I, and I think, well, damn, when I grow the plants, all they ever put out are leaves and branches, you know, <laughs> not realizing that in the autumn, the plant would then start flowering, triggered by the shorter days. So I had a book by Jorge Cervantes, uh, Indoor Marijuana Cultivation. And it was one of the books that a lot of folks in that, around that time, that was the first thing that they bought and learned to grow cannabis from it. And I was no different. And I can remember it was almost like the story of Archimedes when he realized you know, that he could uh, use the density of materials to tell the difference between whether the king's crown was made of gold or if it was filled with silver. And he, reputedly ran naked through the streets yelling, Eureka, Eureka, when he figured out the secret, you know, and it was almost like when I read that part of Jorge Cervantes's book where he told about how the short days and the long nights was what triggered the plant to start flowering, I was like, oh my God, this is like such powerful information that I'm going to be able to use to my advantage going forward here. And, um, you know, I can elaborate on that, but just that moment was huge for me because I realized what, what it was that wasn't happening and why my plants weren't flowering and all that sort of thing and then built a indoor grow room according to the kinds of advice that I read out of the book and within a pretty short time I was actually growing good weed right there in college and you know or some of my friends were taking advantage of that but again it was something that at that time you had to keep it pretty quiet. So that's how I got started. And then the breeding obviously was something that not everybody goes down that route. You know, they're satisfied to have seeds from some reputable source and grow them themselves. But I'm being a scientist, I was kind of interested in that side of it. And I had started out breeding things. Uh, I had started with guinea pigs when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I had been for several years watching how the different animals when they mated what their offspring looked like and how they resembled or didn't resemble the parents and um, of course that got me curious to start reading about things like Mendel's rules of inheritance and how genes and the resorting of genes from each parent creates the child and the variability in the children the f1 and f2 and so on generations and all that sort of thing so uh, I guess I had the right organically 
developed uh, background to lead me toward wanting to be a breeder and having the right kind of stuff, the, the interest and the knowledge to pursue that area. And then the opportunity by working for Super Sativa Seed Club and having all of those famous strains available to me at my fingertips to choose to either grow or cross them and make new seeds and experiment. So I had several years of fooling around with that stuff. And um, thankfully, that's really where I was able to learn so much. And, uh, and, um, and then eventually, when I, I did go and create Cinderella 99 and some of the other strains <clears throat> 10 years later, again, I was communicating with other guys on the internet when the internet was very new. And we were in these like chat rooms and private chat rooms and so on. And what happened was we'd pass the results of our work around to each other. And you never really know how good your stuff is until other people tell you, you know, like, hey, you sent me this weed and I got to tell you, it's like nothing I've ever smoked before. And you're like, really? <laughs> Isn't it all like this? You know? because you're living in a bubble. Everybody's living in a little bubble at that time. And uh, there wasn't all this free flow of information and um, sharing of um, the materials and the knowledge. So apparently, you know, I was eventually convinced, like, I guess I have something special here because everybody else seems to think so. And um, I had pressure, or I don't know, pressure isn't the right word, but I had encouragement to uh, spread these seeds and make them available to other people. And so within the club that we had, uh, the 77 was the name of the club. We had an online chat uh, board that was private and it was invitation only and so on. And in a pretty short time, I guess I, I sort of made myself famous within the group for having done this type of breeding and making the seeds available. And <clears throat> pretty early on, Sly reached out to me and said, hey, dude, you know, like, why don't we work together and make a seed company? You've got some really amazing stuff. I could fill out your menu, you know, with the stuff that I do. And then he had connections to the dude in Canada, Richard, <clears throat> from Heaven Stairway. And one thing led to another. And before too long, we were supplying, you know, a few thousand seeds at a time to Richard, and then he'd package them and put them out to folks. And um, that was the beginning of Brothers Grimm. About five years of that, and uh, one day a phone rings and it's Sly, and he's sounding nervous, and something went wrong on his end where he felt that he'd compromised our security. And we had always said, uh, five years of this is probably as long as we can get away with it and not be pushing our luck to the point where we just tried to keep it going too long and then got busted or something. And so here we were five years into it and he's getting nervous about something that he said or did or saw that made him feel like we might be in, could be potentially in trouble. And so I immediately went and just trashed all of the equipment that I had in my basement and just emptied it all out and put it in a truck and drove it off to a dump and just left all these HID lamps and timers and everything else there. Because we were so paranoid, you know, at that time, this is 2001. And uh, it was right after 9-11 had happened in New York City and you know, elsewhere. <clears throat> so that whole event changed the way this whole country and the world really started operating. That was the beginning of all the TSA and the airports and all that other stuff. 
So there was just a sense of doom, I guess. <laughs> it was like all the shit's hitting the fan at this point. Like, get out of this business. And I was married to a Belgian woman at the time, and we had the opportunity to just go back to Belgium. So after I tossed everything out of the basement and dismantled my whole grow and closed things down, sold the house, it took, you know, I bet we didn't take more than six months from the phone call from Sly to cleaning house and selling our home and moving to Belgium. <laughs> and then I stayed there for a couple of years and uh, felt like, you know, things must have cooled off enough uh, to come back to the States. And I was actually trying to restart the company in Belgium, but it's a funny country in the sense that buying property, <clears throat> unless you're really rich, it's, it involves sitting in a room and going through like an auction with a bunch of other people to try and get the house. I don't know if anything like that happens in America, but in Belgium, you know, you, you kind of sit around in a room bidding on a house with a bunch of other folks in a room and I could never seem to win the, uh, the, the bid, you know, it was like an auction, win the auction. So for a couple of years, try as I might to find a place to restart the business. I wasn't successful. And I realized like, oh, I'll have to go back to the States. And my children were here in the States too, which was a big part of my motivation to come back. And uh, so I did. Um, and that was around 2004 or five. And then it took another 10 years of working as an engineer to really find that there was an opportunity to get back in this business by moving to Colorado, which was a great decision because I really love Colorado. And if you follow my personal feed, I have an alpaca ranch and I have dogs and chickens and I live by the mountains and uh, it's just been blissful, you know, the, the new life that I've been able to create out here. And Brothers Grimm is stronger and healthier than ever. We've still got the Cinderella 99 and Apollo strains and Killer Queen, all the famous ones from back then. And I've added to that with Rosetta Stone and recently Grim Glue. Um, so Rosetta Stone was in the top 10 of High Times Magazine's uh, strains of 2018. So that's the latest and greatest uh, big plug, I guess you can call for one of the strains that we created. And um, now the latest one of uh, Grim Glue has just been released uh, a few days ago, basically a couple weeks ago, something like that. And um, we just love this new strain in the sense that um, Gorilla Glue is kind of a heavy, um, lethargic uh, high, or that's the way I feel when I smoke it. Um, and by crossing with Cinderella 99, we've created something where the high is a little more, I call it sparkling, and it's uplifting, uh, euphoric high. It doesn't make me sleepy. The flavor is like the cedar wood. It's like if you've ever been in those closets where they create a closet where they're lined in cedar and you just smell this amazing, lovely, woody aroma, you open a jar of Grim Glue and that's what you're getting is a cedar woody smell. And um, the high, uh, again, you know, it's not sleepy, it's more energetic, but it's still relaxing and calming more so than Cinderella 99. So it gets that from the Gorilla Glue side. And then... Um, <clears throat> The other thing is that it's like a cedar wood on the inhale. And then as you 
exhale the smoke, you start to taste that funk from the Gorilla Glue type of familiar uh, Gorilla Glue flavor. So it's been hugely successful with growers and smokers for the past year that we've been testing. And now the official release a couple weeks ago uh, puts the seeds out there. You can see pictures of the strain and read the description on our website, <clears throat> brothersgrimseeds.com. And we're set up now to deal direct to the public. So you can order the seeds direct from us right there on the website, put your credit card information in or however you want to pay, which was really a long time coming. And it was something that I'd really wanted to do, but there were so many hurdles that it seemed we had to jump over or you know hoops to jump through to make it so that it's legal. <clears throat> and essentially what it boiled down to is the, the Hemp Act law, if you think about it, this is an interesting, thing for everybody maybe in your audience to ponder but what's the definition of hemp right it's uh any marijuana product with 0.3 percent thc or less right so any part of the marijuana plant uh or any derivative of it that you would like to sell cbd products being one of them right has less than 0.3 th 0.3 percent thc <clears throat> well Seeds are a part of a marijuana plant that have 0% THC. So even seeds from the most potent weed in the world are still technically hemp. So if you're selling seeds to anyone, you're selling a non-THC product, you're selling them hemp. Whether those seeds will grow into a high THC producing plant or not, the seeds themselves are hemp. Right. And that's the important distinction that allows seeds to be sold uh, legally uh, versus marijuana. They can't be considered. Um, I use the word marijuana because I'm an older guy, I guess. It's almost considered uh, sensitive uh, somehow socially today. But um, I still call it marijuana cannabis. I don't think uh, it's necessarily sociable sensitive. I think we're just trying to bring back the right terminology, you know. Right. And I mean, uh, I'm all for that. Um, it's a nostalgic thing for me. I guess it's the it's the distinction in my mind between, you know, like a CBD product. I think like, well, yeah, that's cannabis. And so are genes or something that are made out of cannabis fiber or whatever. But marijuana, that's the stuff that gets you high. You know? <laughs> that's just how uh, folks from my generation think of it, you know. But anyway, um, that was a very... Uh, deep philosophical for me, um, and I'm a very philosophical guy. I love to study philosophy. I can talk about all different philosophers from all the different ages, all the way back to the Greeks, to the postmodernism and so on. But here, think about this um, just as a way of how Mr. Soul thinks about things might be enlightening to your, to your audience. But um, for me, if you... Um, follow along the way they were treating seeds from marijuana plant or cannabis seeds let's say right <clears throat> if it's a seed that produces a plant that it will be a thc bearing plant they were basically saying oh that's illegal because it will make a plant that makes thc and my point is like well is there another entity on the planet where we define it not by what it is now, but what it potentially could be under certain conditions in the future. I don't think so. So isn't that a very unfair way to characterize anything on 
the planet Earth. Uh, gee, this object is not what it is now. It's what it's going to be some other day, maybe, if it, under the right conditions with the right person putting this seed in soil at the right temperature and humidity and giving it the right amount of light for the right amount of period of time. I mean, it's ludicrous to define a seed by what it might be one day. It's much more logical to say it is what it is now, right? So philosophically, for me, seeds are hemp, regardless of what plant they would grow into, whether it has 30%, 5%, or what percent THC, the seed itself is hemp. And that's what allows us to sell the seeds on the internet. So you can and just- That and about a half a dozen other disclaimers that our customers have to sign off on, but you know, that keeps everybody safe. And it's almost like with a wink and a nod, uh, we all know what's going on, but uh, we, we want to stay safe and stay within the uh, confines of the law. So anyway, enough on uh, legal and philosophy. Legal I, and know, I, actually, I was just <laughs> getting ready to crack the nut on the philosophy there. Um, dig, dig in, as, brother. As, as far as uh, philosophers go, I'm going to say is modern, I guess, because I, I like to think of anybody else in the current time frame that really strikes a an interest in me and that's alan who's watts. your guy do you, who do you like alan watts is alan watts. I, uh, really yep i really enjoy to uh relax and listen to him speak and uh who's yours did you can you uh, direct me in uh, some directions of some uh, good people to listen to i've been a big fan of uh well there won't be anything you can listen to but i mean you, you can look at videos that describe um Ludwig Wittgenstein, his work, um, he was basically um, this genius from Austria who um, he wrote his first book on philosophy after studying, studying under, um, um, oh God help me, uh, went to Cambridge and studied under um, Bertrand Russell. And um, he came to him and introduced himself. The guy was also like independently wealthy to the tune of like, Rockefeller, right? He came from a family where they were just fabulously wealthy. And so he never had to worry about money or anything. So he did pretty much what he wanted and followed his own dreams. He became an engineer. He uh, studied mathematics and realized like, gee, this is a study that is so precise and able to um, tell you whether something is true or false in a very definite way. Whereas most philosophers were trying to <clears throat> arrive that something that they could call the truth um, and using reason and so on and so forth. But his first book was called the uh, Tractatus. Uh, they just call it the Tractatus. That's a, sh a shorthand name for the full name of his book. But <clears throat> in it, he, uh, he basically claimed to have solved all the problems of philosophy from all of the ages that ever came before him in one book. And basically said that all these guys were just basically playing with words and it was all semantics and language is not capable of conveying the kinds of ideas that they were trying to discuss. It just isn't up to the task because all it is really is it's describing situations and objects that we can picture in our mind and trying to transfer that information to someone else's brain, you know. And language is only good for that much. It really doesn't help to try to discover uh, or to describe 
what is beauty, what is justice, you know, these kinds of things. You can say, what is the, sh you know, the shape of a rectangle <laughs> or something like that. But so I like him for the fact that he was just so bold and, uh, you know, he had the nerve to say, okay, here, I wrote my one book after becoming a philosopher and getting his PhD and he writes this uh, book and then says, okay, now I'm quitting philosophy because <laughs> I've solved all the problems. It's over. <laughs> That's my man. I like that guy. So uh, <clears throat> he's my favorite. Um, but, you know, all the Nietzsche and those kinds of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and then uh, the postmodernists, uh, Der uh, Derrida and, um, and those kinds of guys. I find them all rather fascinating, and I still go back to uh, the older guys. Uh, it, it, there are many podcasts. There's a podcast called Philosophize This. I would advise anybody to check it out. There's a guy, his name is Stephen West, who uh, is the narrator of that show, and he does a lot of great research on the subject of each of his podcasts, and he's got over like 120 or 150 <clears throat> of them that they span back for several years that he's been doing this, but I find them fascinating. He really does a good job of it. And even if you just went on YouTube and looked up philosophical lectures by different people, there's a guy named Robert Solomon. He's really good. And uh, he's got a whole series of philosophical lectures, especially on existentialism. He's really good. So we veered off into the philo uh, philosophy for a bit and, uh, how that relates to cannabis, I don't know, but <clears throat> we do that a lot on this show. We, it's just getting to know you. I mean, this Stoners is like go the, off on tangents a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's the the uh, kind of the idea behind uh, the title of the show. I mean, some people take it plus or minus, but like uh, in a casual settings, if you were like talking with your wife and what you've been doing, there's a good chance you'd be telling you 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 were out talking shit with the boys, or I was out talking shit with Mister Soul. And it's just a com, uh, terminology for a casual conversation like we're having here. And sometimes, you know, uh, it veers off a little bit like that. And personally, I think uh, as far as philosophy goes, what a great way to start your day. I mean, it's almost better than a cup of coffee. It gets your mind racing. It opens you up to uh, new things. It's clarifying. It's a gr just a great way to start your day. You know? And it's uh, it's timeless, really. Uh, <clears throat> Even though we're uh, living in a different time and a different culture uh, than philosophers that were writing 100 years ago, you know, there's still some really basic stuff that just never changes. Hegel speaks of the dialectic and how uh, things change over time by swinging like a pendulum. You know, things will go from the left to the extreme right and then back to the extreme left again. And we've seen that, you know, in the political uh, world that's around us at the moment you know the whole rise of trump and so on became you know it's it's the reaction of things being to the left for such a while there obama and so on for eight years that people wanted to swing very hard to the other direction and that's how change in history has always occurred by things swinging radically from one side to the other and then finding a new middle and then uh, this whole Hegelian dialectic. Uh, the reason I bring it up is that if you're ever frustrated by the way things are, you know, you can kind of take solace in the uh, understanding that, gee, that's just the way things evolve and change over time. And people, very smart people have ta taken note of that. And you can kind of be comforted that 
this too will pass, right? You know, it's like that great in ancient wisdom of uh, don't worry, you know, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute, you know, <laughs> it's going to change. Right on. So I find right. that stuff useful, you know, even in day-to-day life. Oh, every day it should be incorporated a little bit, I think. Oh. Also, so, living an authentic life, you know, the, this chapter of my life where I've been able to come out of the shadows and uh, I like to say uh, pot is the new gay you know it's like we're all coming out now right you know or have been doing that for some time whereas uh, gay folks went through their coming out and uh, being accepted uh, and it took time in a battle just like we had to you know take time and battle our way out of the shadows and the the uh, stigma of being a pot smoker or stoner or whatever you know we're we were put down for you know, being lazy or, you know, whatever those uh, stereotypes that folks would throw at us. And uh, <clears throat> I'm able to now come out from having kind of hidden all that, not being able to tell folks at the water cooler what I did the night before to now I'm on uh, radio shows and podcasts and openly discussing what I do. And if you think about how great that feels inside to be able to live what philosophers would call an authentic life, because most of us live in some stage of inauthenticity to authentic uh, <clears throat> lives, uh, lives, and uh, we generally fall on somewhere in the spectrum between the two endpoints, you know, not living completely in a, in, inauthentically and not living completely authentically, because we kind of have to soften certain things <laughs> just to be polite in society, right, you know? <clears throat> but I do feel uh, I'm able to live a really authentic life. I really enjoy getting up and doing the things I do every day. There's no alarm clock necessary to drag me out of bed. And uh, there's no commute uh, to work that I hate. And there's no <clears throat> bosses that I have to answer to or or some kind of uh, environment that I don't really want to be in. You know, I'm working with plants and animals and it's very satisfying to me. <clears throat> I just feel like I'm a naturalist in the sense that whatever our evolution through time and, you know, we're, we're basically still cavemen, you know, that <laughs> the advancement of modern society has come up so rapidly that if you thought about even as little as 300 years ago, how people lived so radically different than what we're doing today, and even just in little things like comfort, you know, showers and soap and shampoo and toothpaste and let alone the technology of being able to get on an airplane and fly to some other part of the world in just a few hours you know we take very much for granted all of this modern convenience and feel like it's been around uh, that this is the way it's been for such a long time when if you think about billions of years that this planet's existed and and in the, this fraction of a second that a few hundred years really represents, it's all, it's, we take a lot for granted, I guess. And we were really, it's, <clears throat> you know, at our core designed to wake up in the morning hungry in a forest and rummage, uh, go out and forage for food. And that's what our daily lives were meant to really, or for many millions of years consisted of survival, finding shelter and food and a mate, uh, you know, 
holding an iPhone and flipping through pictures on Instagram is a, it's completely foreign to most human experience on this planet for you know such a long period of time. And, and this little sliver of time that we're living in now, I think a lot of people don't really think too deeply into the fact that like, wow, <laughs> can you really believe all the convenience that our lives has now and the ability that we have to connect with things and people and experiences that most most of humans who ever occupied this planet just never even had any of those opportunities or experiences and their entire lives had to be such smaller shallower things i mean i really advocate appreciating everything that we have and what's around us and that's the kind of person i am and it gives me a great charge to my life. I mean, uh, I think that uh, when you do recognize how good you have it just to be alive, um, people will yell at me for saying, but I, I just cannot understand anybody killing themselves in this world. I mean, it's such a short life anyway. Why don't you just stick around and see what happens next? You know, you're going to die soon enough. It's, it's almost too soon for me. So anyway, I don't think that's too far off uh, base there, Mr. Soul, because uh, we talk about that here on the show a lot, you? you know. All right. There, yeah, I didn't yeah. No, because uh, we, we, you know, there's a lot of times every night where, like, say, uh, I'll have a guest on like yourself, and then um, if, when you're done, if we feel like still going on, there's times where, you know, it's hard to turn it off when you get, you know, there's times when 60, 70 people, it's hard to shut it off. So I'll call some people up from chat and then we'll get into another, uh, you know, rabbit hole after the show. But that's kind of Absolutely. what the show does is, is it's an opportunity uh, for people to step out, if you will. Uh, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, great people that like yourself that have been icons in the cannabis industry for years and years and years. But it's uh, the small growers that are you know, able to come on here and show their grows and that grow experience with everybody so that's kind of what the show's about and you know uh, we all believe that uh, appreciating life and stopping and doing something nice uh for somebody else you know random acts of kindness that's la last thing i say before I, every show you know random acts of kindness can change lives and it doesn't take but one act for you to do it to you know change their lives and a lot of times it changes yours and they don't want to take that one oh, act to just steamroll so you're not too far based off, you know, the topic of the show. Oh, I appreciate go that. back and forth, but you know, it's more about getting to know you and it ain't just about the cannabis. We like to know the person behind oh, the cannabis here as well. That really sets you, uh, that really sets your show apart because it's true that, you know, most of the time I'm asked, you know, the standard kinds of things and you stopped him and said, you know, that's all the stuff we could all find anywhere, but we want to know you and I, I really liked that you spun it in that direction. And obviously I, I responded to that by uh, talking about other things uh, outside of that. And, um, and I feel that it, it's been fun to do that with you um, for sure. So I'm happy you did it. And um, I'm happy to be able to share this part of myself with your audience and uh, feels good to get that out there. Cause there are these things that I do have on my chest and, and uh, I'd like to get them out there and let people know. That's why I have a personal Instagram feed as well as the professional business side of my company. <clears throat> I'd also like people to know the Mr. Soul side, you know, and 
how I love my animals and my ranch and the kind of lifestyle that I live, as well as, you know, putting out the uh, fire, fire cannabis strains. Yeah, there's so much, you know, I know when I started this show, I, I talk about and I love to talk about cannabis all day long. But there's, you know, the other side to so many YouTubers and people out there that people don't know. And that's, to me, the kind of interesting side as well. I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I'd like to scrape the surface of some of the breeding at some point. But, you know, I, I, have, I listened to interview after interview of you today. And, oh, yeah, there, there wasn't no, like, inside this side of you anywhere I could find. I appreciate that. Yeah, that, I'd like to be able to go and talk about other things. And if you give me that forum, I'll jump on it. So it's been great. And you mentioned the small time growers and inner closet guys and so on that <clears throat> come on and talk about their experiences. And, you know, they're really important to guys like me too. Uh, those are my clients. These are the people who buy the seeds. And when I test seeds, <clears throat> I'll share a little bit of some of the things that I think about, you know, with your audience here, <clears throat> let's say, Mr. Soul, uh, you come up with a new strain. How do you know it's ready for the public? Well, here's a great way to do that <clears throat> that I came up with was that I always tested the seeds myself, you know, and um, grew a rather large population of any one given strain and then looked for different variations in the phenotypes and whether they'd harm me and all those other things that you normally would check for. But I'm only one guy, right? <clears throat> And I can only grow a certain number of plants uh, given the facility size and so on and how much room in any given facility that you can devote to one new strain and testing it. So <clears throat> I got to thinking a few years ago, wouldn't the best way uh, to test a new strain be to give a lot of those seeds out to the same kinds of people who would be buying them anyway, the potential buyers? And so all the people who follow my company and myself on Instagram, what I did a few years ago is I'd start saying, okay, I have a hundred packs of this new strain that I'm going to give away to interested testers, you know, and I'd read the DMs and see, you know, does this guy sound like he's serious and will he really grow them? And, you know, some people won't, but that's the, it's a numbers game. If you're giving out a hundred packs of seeds, even half of those people, if they got back to you and gave you some feedback, here's what it does for us uh, at Brothers Grimm. We're actually getting the almost exact same people who are going to be buying these seeds later to tell us what they think of them before they buy them, right? And so this is the perfect test group to do whatever they do win, lose, or fail, uh, win, lose, or draw, I guess is the expression, um, with these seeds. And then I'm also simultaneously doing what I always did, which was to grow, you know, a fairly large, po large population of them in my own facility and see what I come up with. But now, <clears throat> not only do I have my own notes and observations from these crops, I have 100 or 50 or some odd uh, large number of people from that select group that is meaningful to me because these are the potential customers for the seeds anyway. And so if they like them, they're gonna still like them when they buy them. If they don't like them, then they're not gonna to wanna to buy them. And so I wouldn't release them. So it really gives me a great test bed for the new strain like Grim Glue that just came out. 
I started sending seeds out over a year ago to groups of people that you know would test them alongside of me. And as long as I'm seeing uh, that their reports are matching what I'm seeing from my own results, <clears throat> that tells me that you know we're all seeing uh, stability, uniformity. And if they're saying like they're showing me pictures that don't look anything like mine, then I'm I know that there's too much variation in this strain. I'm not going to release it because I've always been known for producing seeds that are very uniform. You buy a pack of any one of my strains you're gonna get a group of plants that all look alike and perform alike and not only alike, but they're going to perform as advertised on the seed pack and how they were described in my description on, on the seed pack. So that's just the way that I believe, you know, you really should, if you're doing this right, be producing seeds because what good is it to a buyer <clears throat> when they read a description of a strain and they say, yeah, that sounds good. That's what I wanna grow. And then only one or two out of the pot of the pack actually turn out to be anything like the description. You know, that's, to me, that's not a good product. But, you know, many people believe that variation is fun. You know, they like to do pheno hunting or whatever, but. I've got, uh, I, we can go shoot off in this direction for a little bit. Oh, yeah, if sure. you'd like to uh, get a drink, I hear you kind of, have a little uh, something in the back of your throat. I'd be happy to going on for, a while. for a minute while you, while you yeah. get something to drink. Uh, I'd be happy I shouldn't to, stay you know. on more. I shouldn't stay on too much longer. I'll probably give you another 10, 15 minute, minutes if that's okay. Cause I'm uh, kind of used to going to bed early and getting up on the farm here. And uh, we're pushing my timing a bit to be up here well, this hour. But timing's very precious and I, I'm very thankful for every second you I hope that me. won't uh, ruin the show on you and I, I don't know how long you expected me to hang on here, but- uh, Oh no, I, I, I fully, I do this to everybody. I hope to drag everybody on as long as I can. And I, it, I knew that. this is one of those things with you that, uh, you know, I could probably talk to you honestly for probably about eight hours. <laughs> Seriously, about well, don't let uh, me just take up all the time. Sounds like you'd have some pretty interesting questions I should answer. I, I've got I've got plenty of questions here from me, and I'm planning. Why don't you fire a couple? Let, let's try to do like three more questions, something in, uh, where I can address three more things that are of great interest to you and your audience before I go. All right, I guess I got to get my beauty rest. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so uh, I've got a couple of good ones here, and but I've fielded a, a few questions from a uh, good couple friends too. I bet some uh, of the chat questions have been good. I haven't turned on your chat to know what folks are asking, but oh, I fielded know. some good questions from some great uh, cannabis friends of mine that uh, they're very good questions. But first of all, I have uh, two questions. I guess one of them relates to what we're already basically talking about uh, is the testing process mm -hmm. is because I've been a long time uh, seed tester myself and uh, I've been around. I used to uh, actually be a big part of uh, Subcool stuff. I was uh, one of his uh, reps here in Michigan and sold I mean, seeds and was one of his testers. That's about as long... far back as I can go. I mean, I've known Subcool from the 77 days and back in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, he's recently passed. And uh, He's a very good friend of mine as well. I've yeah. actually tested 57 of his strains. And uh, so my, my uh, question for you is, like, when do you like your information? 
I've ran a few hundred. I'm, I, I like to, I've got some attraction anyway, but not nothing here like you have, I'm sure. What was uh, my, the question? My, the question is, uh, when do you like your information? Because a lot of the breeders, when I uh, dropped some of their seeds, they're instantly pushing you for those pictures in the data. And I uh-huh. really feel myself that, uh, you know, everything doesn't come out until that second run. I mean, they want all, they want that strain report in pictures that first run. But mm-hmm. realistically, if you want me to give you a full judgment on phenotypes and uh, all that good stuff, I really believe you should let me run it twice. Once yep. just to let it pop up and come up naturally to see what I get. And then the second time to manipulate it a little bit and uh, see if I can bring out, uh, oh, now I just hit three questions. I well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I think <laughs> I know where you're going with this. But uh, for me, uh, you are being super hypercritical and you know you're taking it to a degree that is way above and beyond what you could expect from most people so i wouldn't expect guys to do what you're doing but one thing that i would draw a distinction to is that during the veg state there's not a whole lot that you're going to be able to tell about a plant you know like the real proof of the pudding is in the flower that it produces so you know i I'll branch off in a couple different directions here. Say you're looking at your females in veg and um, what is it that you can really say about, you know, what, what's it going to be when it, other than structurally, you know, if it's got fat branches, if it's bushy, if it's skinny, you know, there, there's some morphological differences that you could discuss, but nothing that's really going to say, yeah, uh, that's an indicator that it's going to be a great strain or that the flower is going to be wonderful for, you know, people will talk about stem rubs and, you know, these kinds of things. Maybe, you know, it might have some weight, but I guess where I'm going with this is that my testers, I'd rather not have them telling me about how the plant looks in veg too much, you know, just in general, okay, it's this tall after or this long of growing it seems to be a kind of a bushy plant the internodes are close together far apart leaves are lots of uh, petals if you will on the leaf uh, or not you know all of those things might be interesting to you know to some degree but it really isn't going to tell you anything terribly meaningful about how it's going to flower So for me, the more important thing is like tracking week by week when they do finally go into flower. Now here, I'll branch off again. And to your point, the second run for me is not, um, well, the first run would be the seedlings themselves, each female in the room expressing themselves as uh, a group from one strain and seeing if there's much variation amongst them and what the commonalities are and so on. And that's your seedling run. But then most people, once they find a really good female from seed, they're gonna wanna run clone runs of that over and over and over for presumably forever, right? You know, Because if it's such a good plant that you're just gonna wanna keep a mother and clone it and flower those clones. And sometimes the clone performance isn't exactly the same as the seedling. I mean, 99% of the time it isn't. You'll always find that the clones from that female uh, are growing 
slightly differently than they did as a seedling because the seedling is like a younger plant and hasn't had time to be a fully mature plant. Whereas a cutting off of a grown fe a mature female is gonna root and grow pretty much like it's starting out as a mature plant already where it's not going through any juvenile period of this uh, vigorous growth. And uh, they tend to be bigger and taller and so on growing from seed than from a clone. They tend to be more compact and stay tighter as a clone than they will as a seedling. So it's important to kind of see how does, a, how does any selected female, one of the better females from the seedling group then perform as a clone? And so there's a distinction between those, which makes what you're doing, that second run, if, it, if you're talking about a clone run from the seedlings, that would be something I'd be very interested in hearing your results from that too. Now, what about, um, we talked about looking at um, the morphology of a plant in veg and then <clears throat> hopefully realizing like, you're not gonna be able to tell much from the plant in the veg state about how it will flower later. And we're assuming that we're talking about females. Now let's switch the subject to what if they're males? You see so many times guys who will put a picture up on Instagram or somewhere and say, look at this stud of a male that, you know, like this is gonna be like an incredible, uh, and, and they'll have all these um, superfluous uh, or, or, or superlatives to uh, describe how wonderful this male is based on what? The way it looks in veg, really? <laughs> you know, what can you really tell about a male in terms of, you know, how good it's going to be as a breeding, um, as, as a breeding um, stock uh, with a female to create a generation of the next generation, right? Because when you think about it, we're trying to grow females for flower, not males. And the male is contributing 50% of the genetic information into the next generation. So he's very important, but you can't look at a male and see any female qualities, right? It, it, he's not female. It'd be like looking at a man and trying to figure out, would he be able, because remember a male's only value is the quality of his female progeny, right? So the measure of a male in terms of how good of a breeder was this male really is, did he create incredible daughters? And in genetics, there's a rule that like begets like, right? That's Mendel's, you know, <clears throat> plants that have yellow flowers would be more likely to pass on genes from yellow flowers in the next generation. And plants with fat stalks or wide leaves or any one particular characteristic that we're looking at that we would like to see in the next generation, you would likely want to put parents that have those qualities as the breeding pair that's gonna create that generation, do you follow? Um, so what I'm saying is that you can easily look at a female uh, and flower her out and say, wow, she had a lot of great qualities that I would like to pass on into the next generation. So how do I match her up with a male that won't mess that up? Or even better, a male that will accentuate those qualities in their daughters and make them even better than the mother, right? <clears throat> well, you can't look at a male and see 
female qualities to judge him by. And yet you're gonna say, oh, I, uh, they're deluding themselves, these guys. When they look at these pictures and they're like, oh, this is a great looking male plant. Based on what? It's like, suppose we wanted to create girls with beautiful vaginas. We'd find a woman that had a beautiful vagina, but then who's the male that's gonna mate with her? We, we can't tell from looking at a man whether he's going to pass on genes for a beautiful vagina to his daughter, right? But that's what we're doing with cannabis plants because we're trying to breed females. And when you're, when you're putting a male and a female together, you only know half the story. You're guessing and crossing your fingers about what the male's going to do. And the only way to really test whether a male is good or bad in a breeding scenario is by growing out the next generation and seeing did he really contribute anything good uh, to this union? And by crossing him to one female isn't gonna tell you a whole lot. So you basically have to cross that male's pollen to several females of good quality and then see what the daughters look like and see if there's some common denominator that you could say the male must've done that, you know, because it's like right across the board, this effect in the progeny was created in each one of these females offspring that must have come from this male, right? So there's a lot of work that goes into trying to figure out if you've got a good male or not. And it's time consuming and it takes dedication and diligence that most of these closet breeders and so on, you can imagine, especially during the prohibition years, there wasn't enough time and space to do the, the, do the uh, statistics, uh, make statistically meaningful numbers to really come up with anything. So it was all with a wing and a prayer, you know, the choosing of a male for cannabis breeding is a very elusive and difficult subject uh, that takes dedication and scientific precision to really narrow it down and find out whether this male really is any good or not. And that's why when I do my seminars on feminized seeds, once I've cleared the hurdle with folks so that they understand how to make fem seeds that won't be hermaphrodites, the next thing I discuss is now, now that you know how we can bring two female plants together to make seeds, think about what a huge advantage that is that to not have to pick a male anymore, right? Because now what you're really doing is you're seeing the two women with the two beautiful vaginas and you're able to make them together to get more daughters with beautiful vaginas, right? So we're, we're breeding for female traits and both parents are females so you can much more reliably and predictably put them together and guess what kind of an outcome you're going to get right so we branched off from you know looking at they, plants they, in a vegetative be, state and taking that be, uh, to like a, a graduate school, graduate school level <laughs> oh i i appreciate it though that is, that would that definitely explains why uh, most breeders, most reputable breeders, will keep that same stud for a long period of time to eliminate that uh, process, like you just said. That takes so much time of flowering them out and finding that common denominator. Oh yeah, once you have a male that you feel like, okay, this guy is a stud and he does create female daughters, you know, he has daughters that are extremely high quality. Um, then yeah, you wouldn't want to keep that male in the vegetative state and take clones of him for creating pollen for future crops. And that's what I've always done in the past. But the funny thing is that with male plants in the vegetative state, 
it's difficult to keep them from flowering even in veg when they get old enough you know they just even female plants you know they'll show a lot more pre-flowers in the crotches of the branches when they're older versus if they were just a seedling so what happens with males is it's very hard to keep them for more than a few years and they start to like just be a liability in your in your grow house because they're letting out pollen at times when they shouldn't so it's tough to keep a male um, and females are obviously a lot easier. And I've just reached a point where I'm starting to think that I won't be breeding with males much anymore. Um, the other thing is that I can't in one facility breed for female seeds and, then, and breed for regular seeds in the same facility because there's a risk that a pollen grain from a real male that has a Y chromosome in it would get into a room that's supposed to be making fem seeds, and then somebody's gonna get a male plant, you know, out of a pack of my fem seeds. I can't have that happen. So one of the ways that I avoid that happening is that I have a facility de dedicated only to fem seeds. There's never been a male in the building, you know? <laughs> you know? And so that way, I know the only pollen that's ever in that facility is X, X pollen, you know? And I'll maybe branch, uh, let's take a second to dissect that because the way that female seeds are made is by inducing hormonally a female to produce male flowers. And then when those male flowers release pollen, the fact that it is, a, uh, is pollen that's being produced by a plant that was female means that all of the grains of pollen will only have X chromosomes in them, whereas a male plant produces pollen that has a half 50% on average statistically would have X chromosomes in them and the other half would have Y chromosomes in them. So you can kind of picture a room full of like this dust of pollen that half of them are X's and half of them are Y's and they're all just randomly floating around. And when any particular grain of pollen lands on a female flower and pollinates it, the thing that determines whether the seed that's produced is going to be a male seed or a female seed is whether that pollen grain had a Y or an X chromosome in it, right? Because females have only X chromosomes in their genetic makeup. And you cannot just, uh, a female can't create a Y chromosome out of thin air. You know, it, it only has X chromosomes in its genetic makeup to contribute. So once a female has been induced to create pollen, all that pollen has X chromosomes. So all the pollen floating around in the room, no matter which one of them lands on a female flower, it's gonna create a female seed, right? So that's how female seeds are made. Um, and I hate the word feminized because it sounds like somebody did something nefarious or, uh, you know, hocus pocus to, let's say you had a pile of seeds that would have been regular seeds, but by either spraying them with some magic spray or waving a magic wand over them, you've converted them into, you have feminized them, you know, this is what I hate about the word, this is, I'm such a stickler about the English language, this is a past tense word, that means that something was something else, but you've changed it into this, right? I feminized these seeds. That's not at all how this works, right? I mean, feminized seeds are created by crossing two females so that the one that was producing pollen, the grains of pollen all had X chromosomes in them. And when they landed on the other female's 
female flowers, you got nothing but female seeds. And they don't need to be feminized after that, you know. I had some newbie questions sometimes from people who bought seeds or were considering buying seeds. And they were like, do you, I had this one girl, she asked me, I thought it was the cutest damn thing. And of course she's a Southern gal. So I can picture her saying it with her accent and everything. She's like, when I get these seeds, are they going to be feminized? Or is there something I'm going to have to do to them to feminize them? And I'm like, so fucking cute. <laughs> but no, uh, <laughs> this is how it works. So um, anyway. I mean, you're making this very difficult for me because there's awesome, <laughs> awesome chats, uh, awesome questions in chat, and you're picking right out of my personal, uh, you know, list here, which my next question, I'm, behind, I'm having a hard time here because I have so many great questions from myself for a breeder, but there's so many great, okay. well, some of the other ones are all C99 questions. There's some good ones here relating to breeding in the chat. But my next question, because you're already kind of here, is one of my personal okay. questions. Is uh, It regards feminized seeds, because uh, I've heard and argued with people about this, and I guess it really comes down to a quality breeder. Uh, in my opinion, uh, there shouldn't be uh, a geno genome drift in a feminized seed. Uh, I feel like if you're getting some kind of drift, they... You, you've got seeds from a half-assed breeder that threw in uh, yeah. multiple multiple uh, different uh, let me uh, let me address types. that yeah let me address you, that in a, in a, in a very uh, unif in a universal uh, generic way um, what you're basically saying is that people believe that a female that results from fem seed is somehow different than a female that would have come from regular seed right isn't that, isn't that the basis of what you're branching off from? Because you're saying, well, you know, if you grow a femme plant, won't there be genetic drift or something down the road, right? So what is your I'm, question? I'm referring isn't to like, if you pop a, a, a female, female seed there, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people tell me there's going to be a Pheno, different phenotypes, if you want, which basically phenotypes is uh, more or less uh, your environment, right? It's a genotype that is expressing a phenotype, right? Of yeah, let me, let, me, let, me, let me hit that real quick because the difference between phenotype and genotype is a plant's genotype is the recipe that it contains in its uh, DNA information. It's the potential qualities that that plant could have under the right conditions and the phenotype is the actual resulting plant that you're seeing that has been shaped by its environment in a way that any one of those environmental factors that was necessary for the plant to reach its full potential if it was given that then it matches the genotype and anywhere that the environment was lacking and didn't provide the sufficient environmental factors for that quality to actually be realized in reality, in the world, in the environment that it's living in, that means that it didn't quite match the potential that the genotype would have allowed that plant to reach had the conditions been right in its environment, right? So 
phenotype is the resulting plant that uh, the environment shaped, but the genotype was its potential if given a perfect environment, right? Is that clear? Did I say yeah, that right? You okay. Perfect, perfect. Okay, so. So my question sure with I'm that being said is, but, uh, when you pop a, a female seed, there should be only one genome type, unless you use several different uh, no, no, here's strains, what right? I would here's think the, that, okay. Let, let me, I think I know where you're going. What, what you're thinking of right there is when you're selfing a plant, right? Then there wouldn't be a lot of variation because both parents are the same parent, right? You're, you're taking pollen that was produced by a certain particular female and then pollinating clones of that same plant with pollen from itself. And that's a self, that's, a, that's an S1 uh, that's been created. And yes, that will be a fem seed, but it will also be a very uniform seed that all the plants should be very much like the original plant because basically they're just getting her genes, right? Whereas if you do a hybrid cross between one female of one strain that's been induced to produce pollen and it pollinates a different strain female, then the hybrids that result from that, they may have variations based on how polyhybrid the two parents were, or if they were both like pure breeding strains and you cross them together, the hybrid tends to be rather uniform and all alike. So hopefully- I guess, I guess what I'm thinking here is when like someone like yourself is gonna make uh, some, a femline mm -hmm. uh, that you would uh, take one uh, clones of a bunch of clones of that one in particular cut and then you would self the one, one of them in that room and then pollinate all the other girls and that's what i would think all the consistency would be no no so um there's some confusion there because um selfing is completely unnecessary to make fem seeds you're just uh, like i say the main thing and you'll learn this in the seminars that i give on fem seeds is that the, the, the mistake that people made in the beginning when they thought they were making fem seeds was that they were breeding for hermaphrodites because what they would do is they'd stress a female until it grew male flowers and the fact that the female can only produce x chromosomes means that the pollen that's produced by those flowers will make mostly female plants <clears throat> they'll all be female but here's the problem you stressed one of the parents and it produced pollen or male flowers and isn't the uh, definition of a hermaphrodite a female that will make male flowers due to stress or environmental conditions yes so basically all they're doing is identifying a finding a hermaphrodite and pollinating another female with it and of course they're going to get some female plants and that they're also going to get a pretty good proportion of hermaphrodites right so that was what they did wrong in the beginning when they first had the concept of making fem seeds they they were making that huge error but it's kind of understandable in the sense that well how am i going to get pollen from a female to make fem seeds if i don't stress her into making this uh making the pollen and i can i can sure that the def definition of a, a herm is uh very broad 
Because in well, my instance, when I makes both male and female sexual organs, right? Yes, sir. But in, you, in you, case, you also threw the stress on there. But I kind of think I'm that a banana that later right on isn't hmm. necessarily a herm. That's a, that's a stress trait that is uh, trying for the plant to survive. It's not a you know. Okay, let me let me make it even more clear. All right, I, I left out an important point. You did bring this to my mind. So. The definition of a hermaphrodite is, in our business, we're mostly dealing with what should have been a, for a female plant. So excuse me for saying, it's a female that either through stress or just through genetic traits that it inherited from its parents will make male flowers on a female plant, right? So the thing that we, the thing that I discovered through research was hermaphroditism isn't genetic it, it can be passed on in the genes but it's a result of hormones and a hormone imbalance um, so what's happening is that <clears throat> a female plant if the ethylene uh, it, which is a female hormone is suppressed then it can't make female flowers and it's forced to make male flowers okay and what happens in a hermy where it's reacting to stress is that the stress triggers a hormonal reaction that suppresses the ethylene and then male flowers are resulting. So when I thought about that long enough and hard enough, and it didn't come to me like the first day I thought of it, but I started looking at research and I thought to myself, gee, um, XX makes a female, an X and a Y makes a, a male. Is there some horm is there some chromosomal arrangement that gives you the hermaphrodite. And the more I researched it in the, the medical journals and botany and so on and so forth, what I found out was that hermaphroditism isn't a chromosomally determined, uh, like the sex chromosomes aren't what's determining it. It isn't like some other combination other than two X's or an X and a Y, it's the hormones. And the proof of that is easy to come by because if you think about folks who are, uh, gender, um, how would we call it? Not, I don't wanna use the word confused, that's insulting, but um, people who feel that they weren't really born the gender that they feel that they are inside, what do they do to physiologically change themselves to be closer to the gender that they think that they are uh, based on their feelings and inside? They take hormones, right? right? And so like a woman who thinks she should have been a male can take testosterone and <clears throat> get a thicker uh, voice box and grow facial hair and so on and so forth. So it's the hormones that are turning the plant from being female to growing male flowers. It's not the stress. The stress just triggered the hormone, right? So the right way to make fem seeds is not to find the plants that react to stress by making male flowers, but to find the ones that don't do that, okay? Because what you want to do then is now you've found females that under no conditions will they make male flowers. That's a stable female, a true female that will not hurt me, right? And what you need are two of those because you're gonna cross two females together to make seeds. So both of those females you have to discover resist hermaphroditism completely and then hormonally induce one of them to produce male flowers and then pollinate the other one. And now you've got a fem hybrid. And if you did it with just one plant, 
and crossed it to clones of itself, then you're making a self or an S1 generation, right? But the biggest thing, and it's hard to get your mind wrapped around it, even for myself when I first, I'm trying to describe it to someone else now and expecting them to congeal all of this information in five minutes or a minute, just because I explained it to them, where it took me a month probably of thinking like, oh, wait a second, this is how it works. So I don't expect people to get it immediately, but if you're an astute listener and maybe rewind this a few times and think about what I'm saying, the discovery of a plant that doesn't react to stress by creating male flowers is showing you that this is a, a plant that doesn't have the gene for hermaphroditism, right? And so if you're gonna breed with that plant, then it won't be passing on hermaphroditism, but here's the catch 22. It's like, well, how am I gonna get it to produce pollen if it doesn't react to stress by making male flowers? You have to hormonally induce that. And the way to do that is by <clears throat> a couple different methods of spraying with a silver solution. One of the more popular ones was colloidal silver in the old days. And myself, I prefer to use silver thiosulfate because I can mix that and use it in stronger concentration than the colloidal silver is available commercially, although people can make it at home. And I'm just not interested in doing it that way. But <clears throat> here's what's really happening. It's not so important which formula you use, but recognizing that the silver molecule, when it's uh, sprayed on the plant, what it's doing is it, it interferes with the absorption of ethylene. And so you're blocking the hormone without stressing the plant. You're just going straight to the hormonal reaction. And then even a plant that doesn't react to stress by making male flowers will make male flowers because you've hormonally induced it to do so. And by doing that, now you've got a plant that did produce pollen, but isn't a hermaphrodite. And now you can safely make fem seeds with them. And that's how Brothers Grimm makes our fem seeds where we sell thousands of seeds to commercial growers that are growing them all in a group that we can't have any Hermes, we can't have any pollen, right? And so <clears throat> if we were doing it the way they used to do it back, you know, when they didn't understand how this is done correctly, we would have a lot of problems. But, you know, for a couple of years now, we've been selling fem seeds in large bulk quantities to commercial growers and they're reliably producing all fem crops, you know, just from seed. And that's an economically advantageous way to do it because for a few bucks a piece, I mean, you're paying somewhere around four or $5 a seed. And if you buy tens and hundreds of thousands, the price goes down even more. Uh, versus what, what, what if you were going to fill your commercial facility with clones? How much is a, each clone? You know, you're buying $10, $20, you know, <clears throat> much more than a seed. And what's the disadvantage with the clones? It's really hard to get uh, hundreds or thousands of clones all cut at the exact same day and all rooted on the same day and all the same height, you know, whereas putting down seeds, you're going to have very uniform growth. And if you have seeds that <clears throat> are produced right, you know, Brothers Grimm's known for uniformity in the seed packs anyway. And then if they're all femme <clears throat> on top of that, they're going to be uniform females. And so uh, that's a economically 
advantageous way of going about creating a large crop of female plants where they're all gonna be started at the same time, finish at the same time, be similar pheno phenotypes and flowering times and all that stuff. So um, people have kind of learned that that is the best way to do it. And um, so we're serving that part of the commercial growing uh, uh, community as well as the smaller growers with the single packs of seeds from the website and so on. But um, it's an exciting time. Uh, because like I said earlier, I can live a really authentic life and be who I really feel I am and do the thing that I really want to do in my life. Um, and it's extremely gratifying to see our genetics go out and be so well received and know that uh, you know, so many people are being helped by what we do. And uh, it's a symbiotic thing. Just, I don't know, can't say enough about how, uh, how nice it is to be doing what we do now. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. I know it's getting late. And uh, I, like I said, I could probably bombard you with questions all night long. Instead, well, I'm just going to have gonna... a late night radio show. And uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not really a late night guy, but I, I've done my best. And uh, a lot I of growers are third shifters. Yeah, hung in here for an hour and a half now, I think. Well, I, I take, I am honored for every second that I've gotten good, sir. Uh, if I could, maybe you could come stop back another night and we could I'll be uh, happy to dive do it again, down. absolutely. I'm, Let's do I it again really, another time. Hopefully you've had some fun tonight. I know I've gotten, uh, I've had a great time learning a little bit about the sides that uh, I've never heard about you, the stories I've never heard, which to me, that's the better side. Because like I said, I've listened to you all day long today and I, you know, I appreciate a lot of this great information's out there. But not, nothing that we've heard today, I don't think. So I appreciate yeah. that. And I do. I have, I, I've, I've got a bunch of people that are probably upset that I didn't cover their questions well, right off yeah. the gate. Why don't, why don't I do this? Do you have a bunch of, uh, you can, can you name me like the half a dozen or three different uh, listeners or viewers uh, of your show that I could give a shout out to and from Mr. Soul, personal good night. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Spartan Grown, uh, hey, Spartan. Jack Screenstalk, Jack Greenstock, Jack, Jack Greenstock, uh, Smiley's 